Genesis chapter 2, the second message in a series of this great book. Our title today, The Tree of Life. If you are a note-taker, and we want you to be, there are four points to our message today, four firsts. The first Sabbath, the first garden, the first marriage, and the first law. Those will be our points in this message from Genesis 2. I am excited about the tremendous truths from this book of beginnings. Bible history can be summarized with four gardens. Have you ever thought of it? The first garden was the Garden of Eden where sin entered. The second garden was that of Gethsemane where Christ yielded up his will to the will of the Father. Not my will, but thy will be done. The third garden was the Garden of Calvary and the tomb that was in a garden where they laid the body of Jesus, where our redemption was purchased, where the act was carried out following the ascent of our Lord to the will of the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the fourth garden is in Revelation 21, which we refer to as the heavenly paradise, that marvelous garden where the tree of life is, where there will be no pollution or sin. In this first garden, God gave Adam and Eve all they needed for life and happiness. Notice in verse 8 that the Lord planted a garden eastward in Eden. The Lord is an expert gardener, and he planted there everything that Adam and Eve would ever need. In a delightful, sheltered spot, God showed his interest in man's welfare. From that beginning, we need to take a look at the four firsts that occur in Genesis 2. The first is the Sabbath. God ceased from his creative works. Chapter 1, verse 22 says that he blessed the creatures that he made. And in verse 26 of the first chapter, it says that he blessed the man that he made. Now he blesses the Sabbath in chapter 2, setting it apart as a special day. Now please note that in this passage there is no commandment to observe the Sabbath. I want you to recognize that. God is not telling us to observe the Sabbath. He just set it aside and blessed it as a day of rest after the six days of creation. In fact, if you want something interesting to think about, think about this. Man was created on the sixth day, so the Sabbath was actually the first day for him. That makes interesting thought. The Sabbath does not appear again until the 20th chapter of the book of Exodus, where God commanded his people to keep 
the Sabbath day holy. In Exodus chapter 31, verses 12 through 17, God rehearsed this covenant with Israel, showing them that he gave them the Sabbath, gave Israel the Sabbath as his special covenant sign. And it was to be an eternal sign to the children of Israel. There is no evidence that God ever gave the Sabbath to the Gentiles. No evidence in the Bible at all. In the early church, believers met on the Sabbath until the final break with Israel when they rejected their Messiah, and that will be a part of our study Wednesday night from Acts 7, the final rejection by Israel. And then God turns his attention to the Gentile nations of the earth, giving them the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ without any reservation. After the final break with Israel and the full revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the first day became their day for fellowship and for worship. Now, I want to share some verses quickly with you so that you will have the background evidence of this shift in God's economy. Acts 20, verse 7 says, Upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them. So by Acts 20, it is obvious that the church was gathering on the first day of the week for communion and the preaching of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 16, possibly 30 to 35 years after Pentecost, Paul said to the church at Corinth, Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him. What this is, is simply an instruction to the church at Corinth to bring their offerings to the church when they met. When did they meet? On the first day of the week, let everyone write out his check and bring it into the storehouse of God. Revelation 1.10, John, who was on an isle called Patmos, was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. That's an interesting statement. And God visited him on that day with that great revelation that comprises the last book in the Bible. Now, all of that which I just shared with you from Acts 20, 1 Corinthians 16, Revelation 1, is because of John 20, verse 1, the most important verse of all. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early unto the sepulcher. On the first day of the week, Jesus Christ came out of the grave, triumphant over death, over hell, and over the grave. Up to that moment, everything was lost. Everything was hopeless. The disciples were hiding because of their fear of the Jews. But on the first day of the week, 
something magnificent happened. Jesus Christ came out of that grave, the living, resurrected Redeemer. Some of you feel that we celebrate the resurrection only one day of the year, Easter Sunday. But that is wrong with a capital W. We are celebrating right now the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we do it every Lord's Day because He is not here. He is risen, as He said. And that is significant, my friends. That's powerful. We do not come to a dead Christ. We do not come to a dead gospel or a dead law. We come to a living gospel. We come to a living Savior. We come into a living church because of the resurrection of our leader, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is alive, and he sits at the right hand of the Father right now. Praise God. This is Easter Sunday. Now, in Romans chapter 14, there is an important discussion by Paul to the church at Rome about attitudes. The whole argument of Romans 14 is that of charitableness when there is the tendency to condemn someone for not worshiping on the day you do or for eating something that you cannot eat. This business of competition between churches or denominations as to the day and to the practices is ridiculous, according to the Apostle Paul, and I agree. I don't have time to argue or to put someone down. I'm not doing that at all. If you want to worship on Saturday, God bless you. May Jesus Christ be real in you. Paul said in Romans 14 that it is not today, and we are not to concern ourselves with criticism for those who choose another day or who eat certain things. If someone wants to worship on Saturday, they must not condemn those who want to worship on Sunday and vice versa. If we want to worship on Sunday, we don't condemn those who want to worship on Saturday. Paul said in, Reve in Romans 14, every one of us will give an account of himself to God. They will. I will. We all will. I just am here to tell you today that it has been my habit since I can remember that on the first day of the week I have gone to the house of God without break, without a hesitation, because it's my habit, it's my belief that on this day we can say to the world, Jesus is alive, Jesus can do anything he has ever done, because he is alive, he is real, and today I say it to the world, Jesus is alive, and I can do it better today than I could have done it yesterday. And I can do it better today than I could do it tomorrow, because you're going to be at work tomorrow. So we gather today, on the first day, to say, Jesus is alive. Hallelujah. Now, a dear lady called me this week after watching our television program and asked me why I shout. I don't know. I just get excited. So excuse me. The second first is the first garden. Man was created outside of the garden and placed in the garden by God. 
All that was good and pleasant was there for him to enjoy, and I might add, in abundance. There has never been a shortage with God, and there never will be. Everything that man needed was created. There are no shortages today other than what our greed causes. Because we are greedy, we are hurting. But there is enough for everyone if we could get over our greed. And it would cost a lot less than it's costing. God put everything in abundance in that first garden. The tree of knowledge symbolized the authority of God. To eat of that tree meant to disobey God and incur the penalty of death. One act of disobedience deprived them of their lovely home. Have you thought about what one act of disobedience can do? The consequences of even one sin how many times people have said in my presence, oh, if I only had another chance, if I could just do it over again, what were they saying? They were saying that if they had it to do again, they would make a different choice. They would make a different decision. Oh, if I could do it again, the consequence of one choice, one decision. The tree of life and the tree of death stand together in the midst of the garden. Verse 9. The tree of good and the tree of evil standing there together. Isn't it wonderful to turn to the Revelation and only see the tree of life? There is no tree of death in the Revelation. In that book, it is beside the water of life and there flows healing for the nation's from that plague, hallelujah. No death, no sin, no possibility of falling, the tree of life. Oh, what a hope is ours as we follow the Lord Jesus. Cast out death and all that goes along with it. But right now we have a choice to make. There is a tree in the midst of the garden, right and wrong, good and evil. You get what you go after. If you go after good, you get good. If you go after evil, you'll get evil. If you go after right, you'll get right. If you go after wrong, you'll get wrong. I saw that in a story I was reading of a missionary from India. A fellow went over to India and came back and downgraded the work of missions. He said, I never met one convert at all. The missionary said to this fellow, did you see any tigers? Oh, yes, he said, I was hunting tigers. That's one of the reasons I went. Well, he said, and if you had been hunting native Christians, you could have found them too. I spent many years in India without coming in contact with tigers, but I found hundreds of converts. Oh, I like that. We find what we are looking for. It's good or evil, right or wrong, Christian or tigers, as you look for them. Now, some of you have become aware that we got into the news a little bit this week. Didn't ask for it, just happened. Mr. Pfeiffer from New York, who made a little quote-unquote cartoon, doesn't think I have a sense of humor. 
I hope you'll let him know I do. In that little article written, there was the observation that though I didn't know Mr. Pfeiffer, he has written for the Village Voice and the London Observer and Playboy. Well, I don't know a whole lot about Playboy. That has not been my pursuit. I don't know a lot about the London Observer or the Village Voice, but I do know a lot about Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and all the rest of this blessed book that leads me to eternal life. And I think it's far more important to know what God says than a Piper says, whoever he is. You see, it's what we're looking for. That's what counts in life. If I had been looking in Playboy for whatever you get out of Playboy, I probably would have recognized his name. But you see, thanks be to God, I didn't know. That's a testimony. I didn't know. So you get what you go after, you see. Have you been going after right? You'll get right. If you pursue wrong, your life will be tainted and full of wrong and hurt. There's a tree in the midst of the garden, and God says it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Which one will you pick? God asks you that question today. Will you take the tree of life? You have to choose. And you choose every day whether you're going to follow that road or not, whether you're going to eat the fruit of the tree of life or the tree of evil. People come to counsel with me, and I'm grateful for that opportunity to talk about the things of God. And just this week, it was like revelation to a couple folk who came. I said to them in their distress, listen, if you can live for God today, you can live for him tomorrow. All you have to worry about is today. Are you living for God right now? Yes. Well, then what's the problem? Get up in the morning and say, God, I'm going to live for you today just like I did yesterday. I praise your holy name. I take the tree of life, not the tree of evil. You choose every day. And your life is formed out of that choice. I made my choice a long time ago. I have resolved, I've made up my mind, I'll serve the Lord. I have chosen the tree of life. The first garden presents us that choice. Now, the third first is the first marriage. Everything in creation was pronounced good. In fact, it was pronounced very good, except the loneliness of Adam. Adam was lonely, and God then said, it is not good that man should be alone. God made the first woman out of the flesh and bone of the first man, and he closed up the place with flesh. Verse 21. She was made not from his feet to be trampled by him, or from his head to rule over him, but from his side to be near his heart and loved by him. That solves so many questions in today's ERA discussion out of his side to be loved and to be cherished by him. There was no companionship anywhere in the animal creation. 
God made a companion for Adam out of his side. But please know, dear friends, she was not perfect. It's almost like the personnel director in a business who asked a new applicant for a position in that company, do you lie, cheat, steal, or come in late? The applicant replied, no, I never have, but I can learn. It's almost like that with Eve. I can learn, and she learned. No matter how deeply you love your partner, you will at times act selfishly, speak out in anger, hurt and alienate. But that is no reason for divorce. God said in Malachi, the second chapter, I hate divorce. The Pharisee said, then why did you give a writing of divorcement? He did not give it. He said, I allowed it because of the hardness of your heart. God has never been for it, never will be for it. 1 John 1.8 says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. There are no perfect people and no perfect relationships. But God remembers that we are dust and gives us the power to work out our problems and our particular disturbances with his touch and his anointing if we discover that in our partner there is less than perfectness. Adam was imperfect. Eve was imperfect. But God put them there to perpetuate the race. One great principle of Scripture is forsaking your sins, forsaking your selfishness, and then forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. That would save so many marriages. It frees us to share our failures and our sins with our partners. Confess your faults one to another, James says in his little epistle. And that's good for husbands and wives. Marriage is a commitment of love. Adam committed to Eve. Eve committed to Adam. You shall be one flesh. Ephesians 5:31. The two shall be one. And what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. There is no room in a Christian's life for divorce. None at all. And if that was your plight before your conversion, I have a verse for you. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He that is in Christ is a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. Start this day to magnify Jesus Christ. Your past as if it has never happened. Go on from there to serve him and to love him and others and let his joy be in your life. God will lead you. And if you need to talk about it, we'll talk to you about it. God isn't closing the door and companionship to you. I'm saying for Christians there is absolutely no room for divorce. There is no room for this idea that seems to be even perpetuating the church in these days that we just weren't made for each other. It was a mistake. Hogwash! That's not true! If you made a commitment, it was a commitment of love, and that first marriage teaches us the eternalness of that commitment. Follow it. God will bless you for it. Take the tree of life. 
not the tree of death. Someday I'll spend more time on this whole subject of divorce and remarriage, but I can't do it today. I believe what happened in your past life, God blots out. Now follow Jesus Christ. Don't go headlong into relationships, of course. Pray over them. Seek the counsel of Christians. Seek the face of God. But don't live in the dirt of your past. That's forgotten and forgiven. And God wants you to rise up and be a new person. And if he has a companion for you, he'll show you where he or she is. But it must be in Christ. In Christ. First marriage teaches us it lasts. God's way. Now the fourth verse is the first law. God made Adam a king and he gave him a dominion to be king over. But do you know that a man cannot rule others if he is unable to rule himself? So God had to put a test in front of this man. He gave him this power, according to Psalm 8. But you have to prove yourself now, Adam, whether you can do this or not, whether you're ready for it. God wants his creatures to love and obey him of their own free will. So he will. So he put a test in the garden for man. Adam and Eve enjoyed liberty and abundant provision in the garden. The first law was fair and just. They did not need the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was fair and just, but it was a test. Now just think with me for a moment of this beautiful garden. Thousands of trees with beautiful fruit, bushes, vegetation, everything that Adam and Eve needed. They could have it all except the fruit of one tree. I've said it before, I think. It's kind of like going to the park bench where you see a wet paint sign, and invariably you've got to put your finger on it to see if it's really wet. Why are we like that? It was a test. God said to them in verse 17, In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. There is no contact that leaves its mark more distinctly upon the human features than the disfiguring touch of sin. It can mar the fairest countenance, quench the light from the brightest eyes, steal the freshness and bloom from the sweetest cheek, make one so unrecognizable that even a mother whose eyes are the least and last to be deceived cannot tell her own child. Sin does that to us. The first law was, don't partake of this fruit. You can have all the rest. So as a pastor today in the 20th century, I get all these questions from people. Why can't I do this? Why can't I do that? The church says you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do this, you can't do that. I don't hear that, but that's what people say. Why do we look at that one thing and let it rule us? Why don't we look at all the other things that are in that garden? Look at family love. Look at employment. Look at hope, look at joy, look at peace, look at faith, look at all the other fruits that are in that garden that are available to us. Why do we focus on the one thing and say, that thing keeps me from happiness? God has given us so much more in his economy. Friends, let's learn from history. 
how devastating it is to violate the law of God. One great illustration, I don't know if I've ever shared it with you, is that of Leonardo da Vinci in his great painting of The Last Supper. When he was painting that fantastic mural, which has become world famous, it took him a long time to complete. He wanted a face to portray the face of Jesus Christ. That was impeccable, without any mark of sin on it. He looked for a long time for a man of such pure life that he could put that face on the canvas. Years literally passed. The picture was not finished. One day the artist was sitting in a church looking at a choir in Rome. And there he saw the face of a young man in that choir. And he almost came out of his seat. He said, that's him. That's my Christ. He sought out this young man, found his name to be Pietro Bandinelli. Pietro agreed to sit as Leonardo's Christ. And his face was beautiful on the canvas. He dismissed him with affection. More years passed and the painting was not yet done because he was looking for his Judas. I must find a man whose face sin has hardened and distorted, he said. A debased man, his features stamped with ravages, only wicked living in a wicked heart can show. One day in the streets of Rome, Leonardo da Vinci came upon a wretched creature, a beggar in rags with a face of such hard villainous stamp that even the artist was repulsed. But he knew that he at last had found his Judas. The beggar sat as the model, wanting to make a little money. As he was dismissing him, satisfied with what he had done on the canvas, Da Vinci said, I have not asked your name yet, but I will now. That debauched man said, I am... Pietro Bandinelli, I also sat for your model of Christ. The great artist was, of course, shocked. But indeed, it was true. He had taken his life and wasted it in sin. And it had marked him so that he could now be pictured as Judas. I look around the church today and see the opposite, thank God. Faces once marred by sin now shining with the love of Jesus. That's the exciting part of my work. I'll tell you there's never a dull day when you see people transformed from Judas's to Christ's, if I may use that analogy. From the marks of sin to the joy and effervescence of Jesus Christ. That is tremendous. And that's what always brings me to this pulpit with excitement and expectation. Because I know it's going to happen again today. It happened in the early service. Several down here. I could put my arms around. Tears in their eyes. But a smile on their face as I said to them. Is Jesus in your heart? And they said, yes, he's in my heart. And you could see it. 
Friday night, I was at the singles meeting at the McWaters, and I looked around that room of 45 individuals after the hottest Mexican meal I've ever had. I wondered if I could even preach today after eating some of that food. But I looked into their faces as they introduced themselves, and as I thought of some of them I know a little bit about, and recognized this marvelous grace of God that takes people from here and puts them over here and literally changes them. I thought of Steve Little in my former church who came to me with his mind almost blown out by drugs. He had been married as a young teenager, lost that marriage, his life totally wrecked by sin, staggered into our church, heard the gospel, believed the gospel with what little thinking he could muster up. And the Lord Jesus Christ, who is a specialist in changing lives, reached down and touched Steve Little, put his mind together, put his life totally together until Steve Little became one of the greatest joys of my pastoral work. I married he and his fiancée at the altar of our church. Steve Little went to our Bible school in North Dakota. Right now, this morning, as I'm preaching, do you hear? Steve Little is preaching from his pulpit in O'Brien, Oregon, a pastor ordained into the ministry because of the transforming power of Jesus of Nazareth. That's what I see. I looked around that room and I saw Gail and I saw Connie and I saw Mark and I saw Walt and I saw Bob who have had that same experience out of brokenness. They have found wholeness. And I'll tell you, there was love flowing through that room like you wouldn't believe. The love of God. Exemplified in Genesis chapter 2, where he gave man everything he needed, but said, don't touch this. In our foolishness, we go after this and miss all of this. And I'm here in this pulpit to ask you today, please go after this. Shun this. The tree of life is available to you. Your marriage can be right. You can have a garden that is a paradise. You can know that his law is not grievous. But it's easy. If you just make a choice, that's right and good. Jeremiah 21.8 sums it up. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. What do you choose? Paul in Genesis 2. The next week we'll see how God solved the problem of Adam and Eve's wrong choice with a sacrifice. He's been making sacrifices for us ever since that we might find the tree of life and walk in fullness and joy and blessing. Oh, my heart just yearns that you might find that way to be full and have life that is overflowing. Receive it, will you? Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Before I lead you in prayer and with your heads bowed and people seeking the face of God, how many of you could I include in this closing prayer 
you would raise your hand and say, Pastor Cole, I need this life. My life has been marred and hit by sin and rebellion, but I know God is calling me today and I want to heed his call. Would you indicate that by raising your hand wherever you're sitting and say...